Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Bombato, the Scandinavian La Liga podcast. Episode 10, double figures, can you believe it? I am with Alexander Jonsson as always. How are you, my friend? You back in Vigo? I am great and I am back in Vigo and we finally have sun again. <laughs> yeah, I cannot say the same here in Sweden, but hey, what's new? Um, all right, so get out of the way. I know that you want to rub some stuff in my face to begin with and talk about great goal scorers in the second division and so on. So shoot. <laughs> yeah, so to start off, we had for us two, at least, a special game in the second division this weekend because it was my team, Real Oviedo, against your team, Girona. And uh, it was a very nice result, I have to say. It's not often that that Oviedo scores that many goals. It's not often that Oviedo wins football matches. Uh, but both of those things happened. A 4-2 win for Real Oviedo. Yep. Uh, but the thing I wanted to talk about, which I found a little bit interesting, is Alfredo Ortuño, uh, who used to play for Girona. Former Girona, and this, yes. And this I remember because I was, um, I've been to one match at Montelivi, which is way too few matches, uh, but it was back in 2014, Girona against Deportivo La Coruña on the last match day of Segunda División and uh, with Girona playing for their for survival, basically. And Alfredo Ortuño is the player that I remember the most from that match because he was outstanding in that match. He scored. Uh, at least one goal, and I think he was involved in, in several of the ones that Girona scored. I think they won 3-0 yeah. or something like that, uh, saved the contract. And now uh, this weekend, he was playing in a Girona match again but for the opponent for Real Oviedo and was again the big uh, standout player, scoring two goals and making one assist in Girona's 4-2 win, which means that he's now scored nine goals in 11 matches and is a top scorer of Secunda. And what's interesting with that as well is that until the match against Girona, uh, Real Oviedo was in the relegation zone of, of Segunda Edición. They just now got out of it. Uh, and the second best goal scorer of Segunda was playing for Girona, Stuani, who has scored eight goals now. So that's just some interesting information for everyone not following Segunda. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the Segunda, for those who don't follow, is a ridiculously unpredictable league. Big teams go down and you say, all right, yeah, they, they have a good budget. They should come straight back up. And it rarely happens. Girona have the highest budget in the division right now. They have a guy who was capable of getting 20 goals in La Liga last season. And they're rubbish, to be honest. I thought they'd upgraded on coach. I still kind of think they've upgraded on coach. I thought looking at the squad, okay, they've, they've kept some important players. They've kept probably the most important player. Um, they'll probably have a, a good crack at coming back up. But right now, I mean, even just staying in a playoff position is the battle rather than staying in an automatic promotion position. But And, and just pointing out what you're saying, how, how unpredictable Segunda is and how difficult it is even for the big club, so to say. The team that is bottom of Segunda Division right now and looking really, really badly is Deportivo La Coruña. Mm. Yeah, a team who, again, we would have expected... Well. Well, here's the thing. We should probably clarify this. Behind the scenes at Depor, things have not been necessarily easy for quite a while. So the stature and size of the club is maybe a little bit of an illusion when you look at them and you assume that they would be another one of those sides that should bounce straight back. Um, but I would say there's circumstances uh, beyond the sporting side of things that make life difficult for them, especially when trying to plan for the long term. But yeah, I mean, the fact that Oviedo themselves haven't really had a proper go at promotion um, and they've like they kind of threatened to do it a few times over the last few years but they always seem to fall away at the, the final hurdle or the penultimate hurdle you would say says everything well, 
basically what they've been doing since they go back to Segunda is having incredible first part of the season and everyone being oh, Oviedo is finally going to get into a playoff spot and maybe go up to La Liga again and then they have a horrible second part of the season um, and they end up missing uh, the playoff spots. This season though is very difficult, but uh, di- different because they have started out horrible. Mm. So I think they they have now five matches without a defeat, but on, until then they had basically defeated more or less all the matches. They hadn't a single win until then, and they have uh, have had three wins now and two draws in the last five. So that's a good turnaround. Uh, but maybe that is a positive note for Real Oviedo if they're doing things the other way around uh, and starting badly and ending good because it's much a bigger chance of actually reaching a playoff spot if you end the season good than if you ended badly, yeah, which makes sense. Let's be cautiously optimistic. I believe that yes. I am actually, and I guess this doesn't compromise any journalistic integrity seen as I never work on the Segunda, but I think technically I'm one of the bazillion shareholders in Real Oviedo, just like I'm technically although still not quite sure, a shareholder in Girona. But somewhere I had... Well, I am both as well. Yeah, exactly. Although, (laughs) who knows, really, in that murky world. Um, We should probably move on to the top flight because there's a ton of stuff to talk about. As we are speaking right now, there should be a meeting ongoing to try and decide which date El Clasico is finally going to be played at. But we'll say that with a caveat because it seems highly likely that regardless of what that decision is from the Spanish Football Federation, La Liga is going to appeal it. So that's going to drag on more and more. And anyone who's a fan of Spanish bureaucracy or familiar with Spanish bureaucracy, I should say, will know that these things do not tend to be resolved very quickly. Uh, The options are, I think La Liga's preferred option is the first week in December because there's no Copa del Rey date. So there's therefore no competition. And they want to play at the weekend for commercial reasons, which makes sense. The Spanish Football Federation argues that the 18th of December, which is my 30th birthday, so please, please, please don't make this happen because there are things I'd rather be doing than working, is the date that they want to choose. We'll find out what the, at least the Spanish Football Federation's decision is today, but don't take it as golden because, as I said, it's going to be appealed. It's going to drag on. What I'm kind of interested in, though, I mean, does this have any impact or a practical impact on the teams? Because at least from the way I see it, I don't know about you, I feel like this is quite a boost for Real Madrid that they don't have to play this now. Because considering the result they took at the weekend, and these things make a difference, form, momentum, uh, they're not in the most positive of moods this week, you could say. No, definitely. And I think uh, what's worth pointing out with El Clasico as well is normally when we talk about derbies and stuff, uh, we say that it doesn't really matter what form the teams is in because a derby is always a derby. And as we have seen more times than not, it's not really reflected on, on the current forms of the teams. And I think that was the case for El Clasico back in the day as well, but maybe not as much these days no. because El Clasico is not really that derby feeling anymore. It's more about football in another sense, I would say. Uh, so in that case, I think now maybe more than ever, the current form of the Barca and Real Madrid teams really actually matter yeah and i mean barca have been so generally dominant in these games uh in recent years as well that you know madrid need as many positives as they can take going into the game and now is not the moment especially with the the injury issues that they have on the other hand barca had dembele suspended that suspension will be served now so he will be able to play unless he gets suspended again or injured which is also possible when they eventually play the game in december but the thing i think is kind of interesting about this too is that it's really quite bad timing for Barca because if you look at what happened at the weekend which I'm sure you saw and I certainly saw that front three that was seemingly misfiring or seemingly not 
on the same page all three of them is now finally hitting some form so it's a perfect moment really for them to go into a game like El Clasico and it feels a little bit of a pity that their momentum has been stalled or at least not for Real Madrid but from Barcelona's side I would think. Speaking of the front three I thought that this was probably Antoine Griezmann's best all-round game in a Barca shirt. It was a game that changed my opinion because until now I've not been fully convinced that it's going to work for him uh, as a part of that that trident with Luis Suarez and Lionel Messi. But at the weekend, he looked to to really be in sync with his teammates to know exactly what they were doing and they seemed to understand what he was doing too. So the errors on the training pitch at least appear to be paying off and that's really good news for Barcelona because the longer it dragged on without that trident, what are they calling it now, the MSG clicking, uh, the more the pressure was going to grow on him and the more the, the media hype machine was going to go into overdrive. So that'll be a big weight off his shoulder and off his teammates' shoulders as well, I would think. I Yeah, no, I think it is to point out that as well shows just how important it is to have patience with, with these kind of signings. Uh, as we've talked about before, that just because you're a top star player, um, it doesn't mean that you direct, and you go to a top club doesn't mean that you directly in one, overnight will find your spot. Uh, and if we take Barcelona, especially seeing many, many, uh, many, many examples of this before, is that it takes sometimes even for some of the best players to to actually find their spot. And for many players, it takes over a season, uh, and it's not until in the second season we really see what they go for. Um, and then it comes down a lot to the coach if, if the coach has that patience to, to wait that out and as well with the fans and we know that with top clubs like Barca fans normally don't have the patience. Absolutely. Um, speaking of patience, how much patience is there with Real Madrid, with Zidane's Real Madrid after what happened at the weekend? Um, I don't know about you, but I, I don't think it's just the fact that they lost to, to Mallorca is that the performance was so flat. And I have to say, we have been saying since the start that all is not well in Real Madrid land. And some people were quite quick to point out, you know, the second they won a game that, oh, look, look at this. And I think we insisted rightly that, no, if you look at how they're playing, it's, it's not going well. And again, another example of the weekend, right? I mean, they were awful. Yeah, 100%. And I think, as I think we've talked about before as well, that had it been any other coach than Zinedine Zidane, someone with a, with a different name, with a different uh, connection and relationship with Florentino Perez and, and the club itself, uh, I think he would be under a lot much more pressure than he is right now and he would probably be out of a job already. Uh, and I think that would probably have been the case the first time around he was at Real Madrid as well. Uh, so he lives a lot on his name. And I think, uh, but I think we are getting to a point where that soon doesn't matter anymore. Uh, so I think if it continues like this for much more longer, then Florentino Perez and Real Madrid won't have much of a choice. No, I, I said that I don't think Zidane will make it until the end of the season and I am sticking by it, that prediction. But let's talk about Mallorca because we have a tendency to focus on the big team that loses rather than the smaller team that does something huge. What did you make of them? And also we want to tie this into another general theme which is best exemplified by Granada who are sitting comfortably in third right now. The newcomers in La Liga doing really well. Is that something that is a surprise or something that you expected? Hit me. Uh, I actually find it quite a big surprise. I think if we look back at La Liga the last couple of seasons, the newcomers have done really, really well and impressed a lot. And I thought looking at the newcomers for this season um, and how they have gotten there and what situation they are in as clubs, I thought that this would probably be the season where we go back to, to newcomers struggling and not being that revolutionary as, as we've been 
starting to get used to seeing. Um, and I especially thought that Mallorca would be struggling mm. because even though they have impressed and they've gone, had uh, some two very impressive seasons, they've gone from Segunda B to La Liga and they have a very, very interesting project led by a few Americans. Uh, and it feels like they are getting on the right track. I thought this was probably a little bit too early for them to reach La Liga because it's gone so quickly from Segunda B to La Liga. And something that shows that as well is that against Real Madrid, they had six players, I think, who was with them in Segunda B, mm. now winning over Real Madrid. And that's in one and a half year or something like that, which is just incredible. Uh, so with, your, with Mallorca, I'm, I'm very, very surprised. But it shows that they are really having a, a good project um, they found the right coach I think and they have a, a team that, that trusts each other uh, if we take Granada there again I think I'm very surprised uh, with the fact that they are so high up in the table because as we said before it's still very early days and we shouldn't be blown away too much with uh, with some teams being so high up because they're not going to be there all season but it's still quite remarkable that we're as far into the season as we are and Granada are sitting third I had a disagreement with no less than Iker Casillas on this matter on Twitter last night because I sort of sarcastically pointed out that Granada will not be third come the end of the season. And then he brought up Leicester City's title win in the Premier League, which I think we're starting to see signs of something that's a little bit dangerous. And I don't think this is coming from the Granada fans and it's definitely not coming from their coach because they have their feet in the ground and they say, no, if we stay up, that's great. That's all we want. But you're starting to see people talking about this as like a serious goal for them to try and compete at that point in the table and I, I can totally understand why they're insisting no we're not going to look at the table even think about the table at this stage we just want to do our job and get our work done um when it comes to Mallorca the sort of beautiful thing about that story I think is you have people like Salva Sevilla like Reina who've been written off as La Liga players who everyone thought okay now their career is just going to be lower league and they'll sail off into the the sunset so to speak uh, coming back and having another crack and doing really really well it actually reminds me a little bit of Levante. God, I guess it's 10 years ago now. But there was that Levante team that established itself in La Liga with a bunch of journeymen, essentially. A bunch of players who everyone thought weren't really cut for this level. And they just showed that with you know, good coaching, with uh, experience, and with a lot of heart, you can go a long way. And it's really nice to see, I think. And then uh, the third team we haven't mentioned yet is Osasuna, um, who... I think it's the team that I had most expectations mm. of on the three of them because they they didn't do a lot of signings, I would say, in the summer. They did a few, but it feels like they've done something that many teams that go up to La Liga don't. And they have saved the core of the team that was so successful in Segunda last season. And the thing that I think many teams do wrong in a way is as soon as they go up to La Liga, they basically change the entire squad which, okay, you might have players who are not at the level of playing La Liga, but changing the entire squad is basically starting over. Uh, and what Osasuna have done is that they have kept the core of their team. And then, as we all know, anyone who's followed La Liga uh, for, for a few years knows that when Osasuna is in La Liga, going to El Sadar and play away to Osasuna is the nightmare match of uh, of any ma away match. And we've already seen that this season with Barcelona losing points at El Sadar, for example. Uh, so they are the team that I, going into the season, thought would have the biggest chance of the three to to stay up in, in La Liga because of how the, the team felt going into it and also because of, of the stadium and the fans they have. But all three of them have done incredibly well and it's early days still and a lot can happen and we might see 
the longer the, the season goes, what team is really prepared for being in La Liga and what team is not. But at the moment, they, they are all being very impressive. And what I have to point out as well with all three is that I think they have really good coaches. And I think that makes a huge difference for, for smaller teams. Yeah, it feels like there's a big regeneration of coaching now in Spain happening because you've had the inevitable consequence of a lot of money coming into the Premier League where coaches have gone there or moved on elsewhere. And now there's this other generation going through again. Or there's some people who maybe, again, to come back to the subject of being written off or forgotten about, like Mendilibar, getting a chance at a club again and showing that they they have the capacity to do it with Osasuna. Obviously, you have a coach who didn't necessarily do very well in his previous spell in La Liga, but is revindicating himself. Vindicating himself? I don't know. How do you say that? Is that a Spanish, Spanglish word? I'm not sure. But yeah, it's nice to see. And there seems to be also, in their case, with this particular project, also soon a huge harmony between the the fans and the club, more so perhaps than the last time they were in a top flight. And they were really smart as well in managing to keep on the books the players that the fans really liked, like Brandon Thomas, who's a complete hero there. And they made his deal permanent. So, so far, so good. But I want to return to a slightly less positive note to go back to the Madrid defeat to Mallorca. Uh, Odria Sola's red card... He's taken a lot of stick, a lot of criticism for his performance. And well, I don't like singling out players. I think it's fair enough. Um, how does he come back from this? Can he come back from this? And from someone, because you saw him when he before he was at Real Madrid, did he move there too soon? Would he have been better off staying put, do you think, for his development? Because we've seen this before with people like Azier Yaramendi, obviously. Well, I definitely think so. I think that when he was playing for Real Sociedad, for me, he was one of my favorite players to watch in La Liga. He was incredible uh, on his flank and as well in the Spanish under uh, the Spanish youth national teams. Uh, for me, it's an incredible player. But as since he went to Real Madrid, we've not seen that player at all. Um, so that's like the play- I miss watching Odrio Sola play, even though he's still playing. Uh, because it's just not the same player. And I think it's it's such a big difference uh, in many senses for, for these players when they go to a club like, like Real Madrid. Um, and it's so easy to do that move because it's such a big club. It's most kids' dream to play for Real Madrid or Barcelona. Uh, but in many, I think in many cases, it's not the right move. And I think for Odrio Sola, it definitely wasn't. He was, uh, he's still very young, but he was, I think, one of the most talented and most... Uh, uh, biggest promising players for Spain uh, when he went to Real Madrid. Um, and now he, he's not there at all anymore. And it's, I mean, like you said, rightly, and I think this is important to point out, if you were the player, of course you would want to take it. Why would you not? You would back yourself and say, no, I'm good enough. I'm, I'm up for this challenge. But there's so much evidence, I think, not just the the player that I mentioned, because that's particularly relevant with the Real Sociedad theme of Yaramendi, but also, mm-hmm. you know, people like Martin Erdegaard, who is doing incredibly in La Liga right now. But really, he had to go away to to make that development. And I don't know now if we're already starting to get to a stage where Odriozola might be better off somewhere else for his development. I mean, it's still fairly early days, but there's a lot of negative momentum building just now. And I, I'm not sure how they stop that. And something that needs to be remembered as well, as soon as you're in Barcelona and Real Madrid, it's a complete different pressure than in any other club, than even at Atletico Madrid in, in Spain. And different players handle that in different way. And for some players, it helps them become even better players. For some players, it's put them in a in a completely different situation. So it's so many different factors to play in than just the football abilities. And it's also how teams play, etc. So even though, going to Barcelona Real Madrid might seem as the biggest and most incredible step you can take as a football player. I don't think it is for, for every player. For some players, they just would 
Blum and be a lot better playing for in another type of club. Yeah, it makes me appreciate as well people who who came there at a young age and like thrived under that pressure. I mean, Sergio Ramos, for example. So it's tempting to think, oh, he was established uh, professional footballer, he'd played tons for Sevilla. But if you look back, he only had a couple of seasons under his belt, and then he went there and seems to he's got the kind of personality type that copes with that pressure exceptionally well. Not everyone is. And especially not everyone is at that age. Speaking of someone that is coping exceptionally well, we have to talk about probably the player that we talk about the most on this podcast, but that's not for a coincidence. Martin Erdegaard, another exhibition performance at the weekend, I thought, against Real Betis. Uh, I'm going to throw it out there because I, I think I believe I know the answer to this. Is he the best player in La Liga this season overall? Well, it's, it's when you have players like Lionel Messi, etc., it's very difficult to say. But at the same time, Looking at the, the performances, performance-wise, I think definitely that Martin Odegaard is, is most likely the player who's performed the best uh, of any player in, in La Liga so far this season. But it's always this difficult to uh, to compare, especially different positions, different teams, uh, as we say many times. But Martin Odegaard has been outstanding. And speaking of the pressure that we were talking about before, uh, that's something that amazes me with Odegaard every time that he, there's few players, uh, and especially at that young of an age, that has been or is under the same type of pressure that he's been on, under since he was basically 16 or even younger playing in Norway. And the way he's tackling it is incredible. It's like he there is no pressure on him. Mm. Um, and, and for me, that is one of the most... It's not just the things he does on the pitch, his, his talent, his passes, but it's also his leadership and how he ta- tackles having basically everyone expecting him because now we got the point, I think, where, where everyone expects him to kind of carry Real Sociedad on his shoulders and, and lead away in every single match and he just keeps on doing it. I get the impression, and I think that's super important what you said about how they cope with pressure. I get the impression that his family background helps. I mean, everything you hear about his family seems to be they have their, their head, the right head on their shoulders and seem to, from day one, try to keep him grounded even though they want him to, to do big things and move into a club like Real Madrid is obviously a huge thing. But he strikes me as someone that has the right kind of people around him. And I think that can make a huge difference. Because at some point as well, we have to realize he's playing exceptionally just now. There will come a point, just as there comes for every player, when he has a bad game or he has a couple of bad games in a row. Um, And then maybe some of the momentum and the positive energy will not necessarily be as free-flowing at that point. And then it's about how does he cope with that. But the, the signs, I think, are at the moment that he will be capable more than capable i think and yeah it's just he's one of those players now where if if you haven't already anyone who's listening to this just make a point of tuning in and watching real sociedad at the moment because it's worth it just to watch him it's that rare moment where you catch a player at like the the cusp of the wave you know where it's just about to break and you can see it all unfolding in front of you and even the people who are familiar with him as a player before like me and you I, i would suggest that we're both still surprised at just how good he is and how consistently good he is doing at this new club remember a new club somewhere he moved to in the summer yeah definitely 100 percent. moving on they had uh, someone who and we've kind of linked them at the start of the podcast for obvious reasons because they're from the northern part of uh, europe i wonder now with william joseph scoring an absolute belter of a goal at the weekend and i think at least in my opinion producing really consistently excellent performances as of late is this bad news for alexander isaac it means the chances i'm starting are slim to none at the moment i think so so what does he need to do to stay in the picture because it's a lot to expect him to just come off the bench for 15 minutes and then score a goal every time which would be the easy answer so what does he have to do how does he focus how does he keep himself in with a shout i don't think it's that much to worry about to be honest if out of a swedish perspective 
give uh, for for Swedes and when it comes to Swedes in La Liga, just to put it in in context, when Gudetti was at Celta, for example, um, and Iaguaspas came at the same time and was performing that way. It's not going to be the same situations at, at, as at Celta with Gudetti, where it's like, okay, there is no chance for him to play as long as Iaguaspas exists, basically. Um, I think this is a very, very different type of situation uh, we have with Alexander Isak and William Jose at Real Sociedad because to start with, Real Sociedad is a very, very good club at developing youngsters. Um, I think there, we, which we already touched on before, Alexander Isak is really, really at the right place. Um, I also think that if we look at William Jose, he's very good con- and very consistent at the moment. But looking at him, for example, from last season, he was for sure one of Real Sociedad's most important players last season. And it was basically every time that William Jose played and he played good, Real Sociedad were good. But as soon as he didn't play or he had a bad game, they had a bad game. Um, and it would go... I think in ups and downs for him a bit during last season, he could be in this really good phase and really consistent. And then suddenly he falls out of the face of the earth, basically, and put the club in a really, really uh, difficult situation. And now with Alexander Isak, they have uh, some kind of a security net there that when William, for once, I think he makes William Jose play much better by being there and, and frightening him for, for the spots. And and secondly, when William Jose, if he gets injured or if he's not uh, playing his best, they have Alexander Isak. And I think they know that and I think they understand how important that is, which means it's very important for them to keep Alexander Isak at his best. Um, and in that sense, I think they're going to try to play him as much as they can while still playing William Jose, if that means him coming off the bench or if there is specific matches where they can find a way to play both, uh, we will have to see. But I think they, it's not going to be like Alexander Isak is going to be completely forgotten because William Jose is performing uh, because they are one, uh, it's a club that is very keen on in the development and they are looking at how they can make develop Alexander Isak in the best possible way as uh, to as good of a footballer as possible. And secondly, they need him and they know they need him and they need him to be in a good form. Uh, so there is many reasons for them to try to to get as much out of him as possible. So I think there is, is no reason to worry in the sense that he will be forgotten just because Milan Jose is being really good. And I think also this is a, a long-term project, like you say, for Alexander Isak. I've always had the impression that the minute that William Jose finds that consistency, someone will come in and try and buy him because when he's on, when he's in the mood, he's an excellent centre-forward and capable of doing some pretty spectacular things, not just in terms of goals, but his overall play. And also we're about to enter cup season as well, so there'll be opportunities for Alexander Isak to play in the cup, I would think, because Real Sociedad need to use their squad. Moving on to, I had a revelation this weekend that I want to share with you and I want to see if I'm barking up the wrong tree or if I might have a point. I was watching what was, I think it's safe to say, the biggest game of the weekend in La Liga, Atletico Madrid against Valencia. Third and fourth most successful La Liga clubs of the the modern age, if you like, against each other. And not for the first time, in fact, for, I don't know, the X number of times, I thought that Koke had a really poor game. I get the impression that in the last couple of years, Koke has kind of plateaued. He's leveled off. He's not really doing anything more than he used to do. And actually, on top of that, I think he's doing worse some of the things that he used to do. So an example was there was a, a break on last night where Atletico could have counterattacked. They had two people bombing forward. The ball falls to him on the edge of his area. And this is a moment where you say this is a classic cocky pass. He plays it over the top and at the, passes, at the path of the striker and they're off. He misplaced it. 
it went nowhere. It was something that a few years ago you would have backed him to do nine times out of ten. Uh, his position in the Spain setup is now under question, I think for good reason. What do you make of it? Is, is Koke, is it maybe time to drop Koke even? I don't feel like we're getting the best out of him anymore. Am I being too harsh? Do you know what the reason is for this? Tell me. It's very simple. It's a curse. This is what happened when you score, when you score against Malma. Karma. <laughs> <laughs> No, but in all seriousness, um, I think you have a point. I'm I'm a big Koke fan. I like to call him Kokinu, and I think everyone should start calling him Kokinu because I think it's a brilliant nickname. Mm. It is. Okay, so <laughs> I'm a big uh, big Koke fan, but I agree with you. It's it's not been the same uh, Koke as it was a few years ago, and he's he's definitely lost uh, a bit of that. I don't know if it might have something to do with with Gabi not being at Atletico Madrid anymore and the the connection the two of them had. Uh, we've seen that. I've seen we've seen that in many teams with uh, specific players that with one player who they had next to them for a very very long time leaves. It also affects the the player in question. One different position, but another uh, symbol of, example of that was in Barcelona with Gerard Piquet and Carles Puyol. And when Carles Puyol left, it was like you were like, okay, Gerard Piquet is only a good player if he has uh, Carles Puyol next to him. Now he's outgrown that and and found himself, but it took quite a while for, for Piquet to actually find back to, to himself as a player without Puyol by his side. Uh, and I have no idea if, if that might have something to do with, with Koke, but if he's like since Gabi uh, left Atletico Madrid, it's just not been the same Koke anymore. Um, it kind of has to do with, with Atletico as well, changing a bit as a club. Uh, it's It's always difficult to point out what it is. But I think you definitely have a point that we we have not seen the same Koke. And I think another thing uh, that we talked about a few episodes ago was about this generation, which Koke is a part of, the Spanish generation of players uh, who played so many matches since they were so young and kind of peaked, I think, earlier than most players peak because they started out playing on the top level earlier. Mm. Actually, there's an interesting point I hadn't thought of, and it links also to the next point I was going to make, which was a player who maybe didn't play as many games at a young age or, or not a young age, but let's say an early 20s age, who is now very much hitting his peak in his late 20s and early 30s is Danny Parejo. So maybe we're seeing the contrast of that in action as well. Uh, I don't know if you saw the free kick he took at the weekend, but I mean, it was ridiculous. When I saw that go in, I thought to myself, how many more players in La Liga could have scored that free kick other than Lionel Messi? And the answer I got was probably none. I think he's incredibly underrated as a dead ball specialist. I always think that he's going to create something, some kind of danger when he puts that ball down and takes a few steps back. I think in general, he's been quite underrated for, for a bit now. I think last season, he was one of the best players in, in La Liga and he's uh, closing in on that this season as well. And what's interesting with it is that he's now one of the Valencia fans' biggest, if not their biggest favourite. Mm. Uh, but if we go back a few years, he was one of the most criticised players at the club. Uh, so a lot can can change in quite a lot uh, little span of time. Yeah, absolutely. There's that key moment when Marcelino uh, sort of convinces him to stay because I know that there was interest in him, and that feels very much like a turning point in his career. And I also think what he did at the weekend is significant because he's he's finally started to break into the Spain setup. But his form at the start of this season has been a little bit shaky, and you've maybe seen that pulling back a bit. And how he responds when he responds with that says a lot about his personality and his maturity. I think. Uh, speaking about the Spain setup, Angel Selección, do you agree? The Getafe striker, another player who's criminally underrated, actually, because when we think of Getafe 
forwards, perhaps Jaime Mata and Jorge Molina get the, the biggest share of the headlines. He was outrageous at the weekend. And you know what? In the beginning, I thought this idea was ridiculous. But now that I'm thinking about it, I think, well, if Mata can go, then why can't Angel? Yeah, no, it makes sense. It's uh, And as you say, it's, it's easy to forget about him because it's so easy to talk about Mata and Molina, um, especially with them being so similar type of players and old players who are performing on a very high level and it's so easy to romanticize them and you forgot to get about the third one but the thing is that the the three of them switch quite a lot and have all three been very very important in Getafe's success and but I think it's again when it comes to Spain it it shows a little bit how Spain right now is uh, a national team that might not have the same crop uh, of quality as it had in the last couple of years um, and it's much more difficult to to have a set uh, set squad for for the Spain team because the players that might on paper or their names sounds like they should be the ones who go are not performing on that level. Uh, but I really like that that other players are getting the chance and players who are actually standing out and doing really good. Yeah, actually, I should mention we were well at Bombathopod and its uh, collective form was at the Spain game against Sweden last week. And I was thinking when I was watching that, and I don't know if it hadn't struck me until now or if it just struck me most uh, at that moment that this must be the poorest crop of Spain players, or at least the, the poorest collective performances from Spain that I've seen in a long, long time. And the one thing that concerns me a little bit, actually, and I've fallen into the trap myself uh, when we're talking about players from Getafe, for example, going to the national team, we're starting to fall into that trap of sort of valuing you know, fight, like bite, hard work, the sort of things that Spain used to be associated with before they became a successful winning nation are slowly creeping back into our evaluations when we're deciding which players should go to the Spanish national team. And I think that's a sign of the times. But hey, that's a philosophical debate, I guess, rather than a qualitative debate. The outcome of that, the team that epitomizes that hard work and that fight, Getafe winning the I guess they're calling it now the South Madrid Derby. I'm not sure if other people are calling it the whatever motorway derby against Leganes. I would like to to point out, yes, because I think there is not mo- a lot of people who don't really know the history of this derby. Uh, it is a quite uh, big history between these two clubs. And I would say for, for Huetafe and Leganes, this derby is bigger than than the other der- Madrid derbies. Uh, these are two clubs that are super close. You can basically see... The stadium, the other stadium from, I think it's especially two teams not in the same city who has the closest stadiums for sure in in Spain, um, and it's actually the only Spanish derby that's been played on every single level of Spanish football, which makes it really really cool. And it's just a few years ago that they played a derby in La Liga for the first time, which I think no one uh, associated with either club thought would ever ever happen. Uh, because I think no one thought that either of these clubs would be La Liga clubs, and especially not both of them. Um, but they are, and so that's a really cool story around this derby, which makes it quite different than than many others. Uh, yeah, actually, that's a good now is a good point to plug uh, friends of the show, the Spanish Football Podcast interview with Martin Brathwaite, where he is specifically asked in that about this game, and, and he, he admits he was surprised at just how big it is. It really struck him when he was there that this is a big deal. Um, and yeah, no, it's, a, it's really nice. I think it's something that reminds you of like the magic of football that you, you can, these two teams that have come from the very bottom playing all the way up to get to La Liga is, is a good story and one that we should hold on to. Um, one thing I really didn't expect about this game, I must say, I didn't think it would be, 
I don't want to say easy, but I thought that Leganes would put up more of a fight. Um, um, part of the problem, I think, is with Mauricio Pellegrino's starting lineup. Explain this to me, or explain if I'm misunderstanding here. I can understand maybe why Industry doesn't make it because he's not having as solid a start to the season as he had last year. But Martin Brathwaite scored half of your goals. The previous match day, he scores an absolute belter of a goal. So he must be feeling more confident. And then he starts on the bench. And what happens? In the end, you end up chasing the game and you have to bring them on anyway. What what was Pellegrino doing here? I mean, he, he's lucky he's at a club where he still doesn't seem to be under a huge amount of pressure. But I just can't get behind his thinking. I don't know what his players will be thinking now either. No, I have, have no clue, to be honest. It feels a little bit more like uh, that... Leganes are lost in the in the table. They are still, I think, the only club who hasn't had a single win this season. Uh, maybe it's it, it, for me the only picture I get of this is that they are not really sure what they are doing or what they are up to, and now it's just trying every single drastic move to try to find a way. Um, so I, I can't really give you a. a explanation to, to the starting mm. lineup or or how he's thinking uh but it feels a little bit like Pellegrino has has, has lost it with uh, with Leganes as we said before that they started last season quite badly took them a very long time before they got their first win and then they got it against Barcelona and it was like a renewed Leganes and then especially after the winter uh with all the signings but it feels feels very different this season I have to say because it feels like the team is much more lost than it was at the start of last season even though they weren't getting the results it, it didn't feel as critical I would say as it feels now now you just don't really I can't really see what their plan is or how they're trying to, to change things. No and unless something changes by the time this comes out which I don't think it will it seems like Pellegrino will continue but now he has this sort of I don't want to say ultimatum because coaches always insist they're never given an ultimatum but he'll have the next couple of games to turn things around and then after that I think he finally may well find that his position is considered because Trying to stay in La Liga is no laughing matter. Before we finish, I want to round up with some business up in the Basque country. We would be foolish of us not to. And one story in particular, which probably maybe snuck under the radar a little bit, but it was reported big time in Sweden for obvious reasons. Uh, some comments given by Alaves coach Garitano in his press conference where he seemed to suggest that he was annoyed that Jon Gadetti had gone away with Sweden and didn't play and in and, and his view didn't train intensely enough while he was on international duty. I don't understand this one, I have to admit. It feels to me to be a bad idea to start a sort of war of words or some kind of dispute over a player who you're not really playing that often. I know that John said things have started to change a little bit and he feels like his hard work is being rewarded, but still, not someone who's getting enough minutes. So, it, I mean, I can understand perfectly why, why John wants to go somewhere where he thinks he might have the chance of getting some football. And also, I think it's Jan Andersson's prerogative, whether he uses them or not. He's a coach. He gets to make his decisions. What's going on here? Yeah, I don't really understand it either. And it's not like Garitano has been the, the nicest guy to John either and he's playing him all the time. He he has got very, very little playing time this season. And as you said, even though he's gotten a little bit more, and that is very a little. Mm. Um, one thing that I find interesting as well is from the, the game this weekend was that Garitano decided to put on... John in the 93rd minute, I think. I think he got a few seconds on the pitch. And even the, yeah, the Alaves fans, uh, what I've seen, are, have been like complaining about it. Like, what is Garitano doing? That's just mean uh, and insulting to the player and disrespectful. So to first uh, complain about the, what happened, about him going to Sweden and not getting to play, and then doing that move, I, I to be honest, I have no idea oh. what Garitano is trying to accomplish with this because I'm just seeing 
it turning out in a negative way, uh, I don't see the positive side of it at all. No, I mean, if you have to make a tactical substitution to run down the clock or whatever, that's fine. But being a coach is also about convincing players, right? About keeping them engaged and keeping them on board and managing their psychology. And, and how could John not think that that is a strange thing for his boss to do? Yeah, and that is with Alaves winning 2-0. So that is, there's no need to slow down or anything. You you have like seconds left on the clock. You're 2-0 up. That's a very, very strange substitution to do. All right, so we'll stay in the Basque country then and we'll turn to uh, one of the later games yesterday on Sunday. Athletic Club were 1-0 up for a long time against Bayou de Lille. In the end, though, it goes down to another, a draw for them. I know that you want to talk about not Inyaki Williams' wonder goal, I guess you could call it, another excellent goal from him. But the fact that he's now behind only Alfredo Di Stefano in this table of people who have played the most consecutive La Liga games. What does this tell you? I don't know. I don't remember exactly how many matches it is now, but I think it's over two years of, of matches uh, without with being in the starting 11 for for every week weekend, which is uh, impressive in many ways. It shows that he's a player that, doesn't get injured like never gets injured because that is over two years of not even the smallest of injury that would keep him away from a starting level uh, it also shows that he's a player that because athletic have had more than one coach during this time mm. so he's a player that every coach counts on and wants in their starting 11 so i think in many ways it's positive things about the naki that it shows uh, but then you can also question one thing that we've talked about a lot before when it comes to Athletic Club, and it's their lack of having any real pure strikers scoring the goals. And it's this that Inaki is starting uh, every single match for over two years. Does that show that he doesn't really have any competition for his mm. position? Uh, and would he have competition for his position? Like we were talking about William Jose before, that now when Alexander Isak is there, he's performing even better because he has someone breathing down his neck. Uh, maybe that's something Inaki Williams would need, uh, etc. What What do you take out of that? Yeah, I, I wonder, uh, without being unfair, I, I wonder if at any other club in La Liga, he, someone would be able to do this because I think Athletic's hands are tied for obvious reasons. I also, like, I, I don't want to criticise the player because how can you for staying fit or for being professional? But I wonder also if it might have a negative impact on him because... You know, football, as much as it is a sport, it's also an art. And especially if you're a goal scorer, it's about being creative. It's about coming up with solutions that other people don't anticipate. And more and more in this day and age, when preparation is so good from opponents, when defenders have so much information on the attackers they're facing, that being able to do the unpredictable thing can be, make a huge difference. And if you look at Inyaki's goal scoring rate this season, it's a similar story to the one that we've seen for several years now. He'll score these outrageous goals. Maybe he'll score two excellent goals in a match but I wonder if it would actually be be more useful for him to to be able to score a broader variety of goals more consistently that are maybe less impressive if that makes sense yeah and I think I think it leads back as well to to what I said of, of not really having anyone competing with him for a spot because mm. if you have a spot for over two years and you play from start every single match it shows that there is no one at all competing with you for that spot and I think Football is about competitiveness in so many ways. So I think that is something that probably affects him negatively as well. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's hard to criticize someone for being so ridiculously consistent and looking after themselves so well, obviously, because you can't play that many games without looking after yourself. But maybe we should start the hashtag rest and yaki campaign now for his own good, <laughs> because either he's going to get injured 
or he's not going to have the mental rest he needs to deliver as as much as he should do at this stage in his career when he's starting to hit his peak in theory. But anyway, that's a debate for another time. And I think that's plenty for one week. Next week, it will not be El Clasico, but there will still be tons to talk about. And I will have the, the great Real Sociedad coming here to Vigo. So maybe if we're lucky, we can get some uh, some shatter from any Scandinavian. Oof. We're going to try we're going to try. Good luck. I wish you luck. <laughs> uh, if you can get Martin Edegard again, then you're laughing. So I guess now and until next week, Alexandra Jonsson, seeing as your internet connection has sustained itself for 45 minutes, we should cut our losses and leave. So we'll see you then again next Monday as usual. Hey, Doa. Goodbye. I'll leave this in.